and you may be seated. Well, thank you for being here. If we haven't met personally, my name is Caleb, I'm the lead associate, the pastor here, and I'm glad that you are with us. Thank you for joining us this evening. Today is a great day if this is your first time here, because just after service, as Chelsea already said, we are having an event, a short event, no more than 30 minutes, called Discover Refinery. It's just a great time to come and meet not, not only myself, but the rest of the team that makes this church run, because it is a large team, and they all do incredible work to make everything work within this building and outside and all of our missions and ministries and all that. And so there's people you probably don't know who play really crucial roles, and I'm sure if you are thinking about making this your church or have made this your church, it'd be a great opportunity to meet them. So I encourage you, after service, grab a cup of coffee, whatever you'd like, then please go upstairs with us where we're going to take about 30 minutes to welcome you, get to know you, and then share a little bit about our church and who runs everything we do here. But tonight, we're going to be looking at the book of Daniel, and I have a question for us as we begin service this evening. This question is, is this, have you ever known that you were going to be getting in trouble? Specifically, have you ever known that there were consequences awaiting you, and there's nothing you could have done to deal with those consequences? You can't fix the problem. There's nothing you can do to keep those consequences from coming. You just have to wait for them to arrive. This is a silly example, but when I was young, young enough to need a, need a babysitter, I had done something wrong. I don't even remember what I did, but I did something wrong to where that babysitter had to tell me that when my parents got home, they were going to tell my parents what I did, and there were consequences awaiting. And I don't know, maybe as a parent you've done this or heard this from a babysitter, or maybe as a child you had the same experience, but I don't think I've ever experienced that same level of anxiety, sitting in bed waiting for my dad to get home and hear from a babysitter that I had done something wrong. Because I knew that consequences were coming with that. And for what felt like hours, I had to sit there and wait for my dad to get home and hear that I had been disobedient and he was going to come in probably pretty angry, which he did. In that scenario, obviously, there's, there's a level of anxiety there because there's consequences and I know they're coming. And that's a childhood example. I'm sure you're not sitting here thinking of that example, but you might be thinking of an example as an adult where maybe you made a financial decision that didn't work out well and you had to just wait for those consequences. Maybe you made a decision for your family, a move or a big life decision that at the end of the day didn't work out the way you planned. And so you had to take a moment and just accept that those consequences were gonna come, whether you liked it or not. For whatever reason, there are moments like that in life where consequences arise and there's nothing we can do about it. And tonight, I'm gonna be preaching out of Daniel chapter three. And in Daniel chapter 3, we see an example of this, where there are three Hebrew men who are put in a position where they have to make a choice. And in this choice, they have two options. One of those leads to consequences that they can't control. They can't do anything about. And in fact, at the end of this situation, they make the right choice. Those consequences do come, and they have to face them. There's nothing they could have done about it. But we're going to learn from their situation. And by the end of this evening, my hope is not only do you learn more about Daniel chapter 3, we're going to read it together, but also see how we can learn from their decision making, how we can learn from what they chose to do, how we can learn how about them standing firm in their faith, and also learn how to be faithful to God even when it is not 
personally advantageous. That's a key one. Learning how to be faithful to God even when we don't get something out of it or we get punished for it. Over the last several weeks, we've been in a series called Life Without Compromise, where we've been, we've been going through the book of Daniel, chapter by chapter, learning through situations of, of Daniel and his friends and how they have stood firm in their faith, but specifically chose not to compromise in their faith, even when they were pressured or when they were persecuted for it. And in chapter one of this series, we looked at chapter one for two weeks, but in chapter one, we see Daniel stand firm in his belief that the, the Babylonians, they had unclean food. It was, a, it was a core conviction for Daniel. He stood firm in his belief their food was unclean. But in that same situation, we saw God clearly protect Daniel throughout that situation. So Daniel is faithful, God is faithful. And you can see it clearly. Chapter 2 is very similar. We see Daniel once again stand firm in what he understands, what he's faithful in, what he believes. And in that faithfulness, we see God provide him revelation with the dream and its interpretation. So again, Daniel's faithfulness and God's faithfulness go hand in hand. It's very evident, very clear that God offered him that interpretation, that dream, and it saved Daniel from the king's wrath. See, chapter 1 and chapter 2 give that same formula, if you will. Daniel's faithfulness and then God's faithfulness. They go hand in hand. They're very together. But in chapter 3, we're going to see a little bit of a different formula. Because in chapter 3, we see faithfulness, obedience to God. But these three Hebrew men we're going to look at don't automatically see God's faithfulness. They don't get the privilege of seeing God's faithfulness before the consequences arise. They have to go into the consequences not knowing if deliverance is coming. It's a very different situation. And it's one that we need to understand because just like these Hebrew men, I'm sure either you've had an experience of this or you will, where deliverance or freedom or God's faithfulness is not going to be evident. And it might not come the way we expect it to come. So we're going to learn from their situation. But just to make sure we're on the same page as we move into chapter 3, let me quickly recap chapter 2, at least the end of chapter 2. Because in chapter 2, we see Daniel, who's this Hebrew boy who has been taken into exile into Babylon. We see him interpret a dream for the king of Babylon. Someone who does not honor God, who does not know God, but is in need of an interpretation of a very concerning dream he's been having. And in the end of chapter 2, we see this interpretation, we see this dream. And basically, what the king had been dreaming was this dream about a large statue that represented his nation and all the other nations coming after his nation. But there was a specific thing I mentioned, that his nation was represented as the gold head of the statue. And in the dream, it was to represent that Babylon was the greatest nation and everything else after that was lesser. That is true. That's what God was trying to make clear. But the point of the dream was not to boast in, the Bab in Babylon's strength. The point of the dream was not to give the king a place to boast about how great his nation was. Or the point of the dream was to show the king that even though your nation is strong, even though your nation is the greatest nation of all the nations, yours and every other lesser nation will crumble. And one day, none of them will remain. Not a single one of you will, will be remembered. Not a single one of you will be known. Only the kingdom of God will remain. 
And so it wasn't about boasting in the strength of Babylon, but it was about humbling the king and reminding him, even though you're great, you are not greater than God. In fact, at the end of chapter 2, we saw the king get humbled. At least we thought he did. Because in verse 47 of chapter 2, the king says, it says, it says, the king answered and said to Daniel, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. He's referring to the dream. But for whatever reason, we go from this posture, the king humbled, coming to Daniel, recognizing our God's strength and power, and that he is the Lord of kings. We go from there in chapter 2 to chapter, chapter 3, having a completely different place. Or chapter 3, we will see that humility completely disappear. Here is what chapter 3 begins with. In verse 1, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and breadth 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura, in the providence of Babylon. Now there is some debate on what this statue represented. Some scholars are convinced that this statue was to honor the king's father. Some other scholars, for some reason, they are convinced that this statue was to honor one of their gods, Biel. But I don't think that's true, and I think it's pretty obvious why that wouldn't be true. Because the very last chapter, we saw the king work through this dream about a large statue. And in the next chapter, we see him build a large statue. I don't think that's a coincidence. But again, just like we saw between chapters 1 and chapter 2, chapter 2 and chapter 3, there's some time in between those two chapters, and we don't know how much time. We don't know how long is in between these two chapters, but we do know that at some point in between these two chapters, the enemy seeped into the king's head. The enemy convinced the king of things that weren't true. Somehow, the submission to God the king felt at the end of the previous chapter has been twisted and warped into pride. He went from focusing on the fact and on the purpose of the dream, which was that God's kingdom was everlasting, to somehow focusing on the fact that the king, that his kingdom was the greatest of all the worldly kingdoms. Do you see the difference? It was humility and now it's pride. And so something has happened in between chapter 2 and chapter 3. But again, look at this situation. I don't think it's a coincidence. At the end of chapter 2, we're learning of this dream the king had about this giant statue where his kingdom was represented as as the head of gold in the statue. And now in chapter 3, he is making a giant statue of gold. There is something about this that the king is trying to make clear. His pride is seeping in. And in fact, I really do believe that he is trying to tell the other nations around him, God said, I'm the greatest king and my nation's the greatest nation. I know this for one, another reason. At the, in, the, in verse one, we see just where he put the statue gives us a clue on what he's trying to say. It said he set it up in the plain of Dura. This plain, if you don't know your Babylonian history, this plain is this giant flatland outside of Babylon, the western side of Babylon. It's so big, in fact, that nations all around Babylon can see for miles. They can see the city of Babylon from where they're at. And so the king, putting a giant statue of bright gold 
in this field, in this giant plain. There's no coincidence. He is trying to make it clear to the nations around him, you see that statue? I built that. I'm God's favorite. God told me that we're the greatest nation. You can see how Satan has convinced him, twisted and warped his perspective to think, no, 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 that dream wasn't about how you're going to crumble. Don't worry about that. Worry about now. God said you're great. And the king has latched onto that. And he's telling everyone around him that he is great. All these lesser nations don't compare to Babylon. But let me also be clear. The king in this moment, he isn't, he isn't satisfied with just putting this statue out in the middle of this field. No, he's not convinced. He's not satisfied with that being it. No, he wants to share this statue with all of his officials, everyone that he has in his, in his government. We read in verse 2, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. A king obsessed with his power, and as we saw last week, lacks trust in those closest to him, has erected this huge statue out in the middle of the plain of Dura. Now at this point, I do want to point out something that you might question at some point during this chapter. You're not going to see Daniel. And we don't know where Daniel is. No one quite knows where Daniel is in this situation, but he's not present. Or at least we can assume he's not present, because if he were, you would see Daniel with his friends being persecuted. There's no way, there's nothing we would believe that Daniel would bow down to the statue later on in the chapter. But we can assume just on context, we can assume that at the end of chapter 2, Daniel was given this new power in the government. He was given this new role in the government. More likely than not, he's been sent to go do something out of state and is just not present for this situation. We do know that Daniel would have been faithful to God as he has been, proven himself to be faithful over the last several chapters, but he's just not in this situation. But right now, we don't see Daniel, but we do see a king obsessed with his own power and in this power grab trying to convince everyone around him of his, of his power he is directly spit in the face of God and God's revelation from the previous chapter Daniel gave the king a revelation from God and now instead of humility he is spitting in the face of that revelation and making it all about him but again the king is not satisfied it's not enough to put this statue out in the middle of the field and it's not enough to have the statue be admired by all of his officials. No, the king must have them worship the statue as well. Verse 4, we see it says, And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear that sound of the horn, pipe, lair, trigen, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Brothers and sisters, this is what religion looks like for many people. 
Yeah, so we're seeing in this situation is a king trying to obsess over his own power. But let me be clear. What we're seeing is the example that most people know about religion. That it's about, hey, come and worship this, do this, or else. Come and worship me, or else. There is consequences. This is what people see when they experience religion, or what they think they know about religion. And they're right when it comes to religion. Let me be clear, they are correct. This is what it looks like when you're basing everything you know on religion, on rules and regulation. But let me also be clear that this is nothing like our God. This is nothing like our God. Yes, our God wants the best for us. Yes, our God has commands. Yes, our God wants things of us. Yes, our God has things he wants us to do with our lives. That is conviction. He will, tem- he will convict us to do things the way he wants us to do it. The more we read his word, the more we're in prayer, the more we will learn and be refined, as our name would have it, to look more like Christ. That is a truth. That is a fact. However, God does not look at this as come and worship or else. No, God gave us a choice. And as we just remembered through communion, we are in the presence of that choice. Because other scenarios are, hey, come and do X, Y, and Z for your freedom. Come and do X, Y, and Z so that you can feel that freedom, so you can have that weight lifted off of you. But what Jesus has offered us, which is completely contrary to any other religious thought, is, hey, I did everything, now you come and enjoy the splendor. I've done everything for you. I came and lived a perfect life. I came and died on the cross for your sins. I did everything that you couldn't do. Now you just have to enjoy it. Now you have to come and be faithful to it. But I did it all. Nothing you can do will be perfect enough or good enough to accomplish what I've already done. And so now you just get to enjoy what I've done for you. So when we look at this, know that there are people in your life that think this is what we're doing here. They think we're doing what the king is doing. Coming in and saying, hey, come and bow before me and worship the way we want you to worship or else. Hey, come to the altars or else. But I hope you can explain to people, no, that is not what our God is about. Our God is about inviting people in and having them worship on their own accord, their own decision, their own free will because they love God and that's it. God has accomplished everything for us and we are here to enjoy and celebrate with joy that reality. You see the difference between what religion is and what a relationship with Jesus is. And so these people, they're not enjoying a relationship with the king or with this image or these false gods. What they are experiencing is fear. They are afraid of the king. Because they are afraid of him, they are obeying his commands. Verse 7 shows us, shows us that they obeyed his commands. It says, Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trijan, trijan, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, a few months ago when I started preparing for this sermon series, I, I looked at the book of Daniel because of this situation and situations like it. Again, we're in a series called Life Without Compromise and and we're looking at Daniel and his friends and that's the focal point. We're looking at how they were faithful and how they haven't been compromising. That is good, that's important to recognize, but that's not the reason I chose the book of Daniel. 
Because what you're going to find is every book of the Bible has men and women who are faithful to God and obedient to what God had to say. There are plenty of examples of people who did not compromise or did their best not to compromise on what God has commanded them to do. But in this situation, we're seeing people who are compromising. Look at this situation, verse 7, again, all the people, all the people bowed down and worshipped this golden image. I can't imagine, or I cannot believe that every single person in that audience, in that crowd, were 100% on board with this decision. I can only imagine, as they walked out into that field, many of them were talking among themselves, being like, what is the king doing? This is all of our gold. What on earth is he doing? This is everything we have. This is the king has lost his mind. I'm sure many of them were looking at the situation and saying, this is ridiculous. We're putting all of our gold in a field. We can't use this anymore. It's this false god representing the king and his boastfulness, his pride. And yet, when the king commands them to bow down, what do they do? They bow down. They're afraid of him, and they compromise. And they live out a false version of their life. They live out a false religion, a false God, and they know it's false. They know their king is not all that there is to be. And yet, out of fear and out of wanting to comply and out of not having a strong faith in the first place, they comply to the king's commands and not to what God has commanded them to do. And so all the people fall down and worship the golden image. This is our lives. This is our world. This is not unique to Babylon. This is not unique to this century. This is not unique to anybody. Nothing is new under the sun. Every nation, every generation, every people have the same situation where a new false god presents itself, a new fake religion presents itself, a new culture shift, a new belief system, a new thing that everyone's about, and too many people don't have a firm enough faith to stand up and protest. Instead, we do what the Babylonians did, what these officials did, and they bowed down to God they knew was false. Compromise is much easier than we imagine. Something that before you know it, you're just like these officials. You've compromised and are worshiping a gold statue, a false god. And we do it regularly. This is nothing new. But I do want to be clear that not everyone not everyone fell down and worshipped this gold statue. Not everyone is compromised. In verse 8, or starting in verse 8, we see a group of politicians come to the king. They've all been asked to bow down, and now this politi- group of politicians come to the king, and they say to the king, King, O king, live forever. Come and recognize that three of your officials, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these Hebrew men, they're not worshipping your gold statue. They're not doing what you've asked them to do. What I love about this is just the implications of what these men are doing. Because notice, these are other government officials. And if you looked at chapter 2, or if you were here with us last week, or if you've seen it in the past, chapter 2, we see these three men kind of just riding the coattails of Daniel. Where Daniel is doing all these amazing things to the Lord being obedient, being faithful, and the king is blessing Daniel with higher positions in the king's court. And every single time the king blesses Daniel with a new position, what happens? His three friends come along with him, and they get new positions as well. 
And so I have to imagine that these government officials who came to the king and told on these men are simply jealous that they have taken a role that they wanted. They're like, these guys, they're not doing anything. They've done nothing to deserve this position. I've been here for years. And now they have, they have an example to bring to the king. Because they're saying, hey, these Hebrew men that you just recently put in your court, these men that have been here for not too long, they're not doing what you commanded. Why don't you just throw them in the fire and we'll take those positions? There's political jealousy here. Or at least that's what I have to imagine. But what we see is these men share with the king, enlighten him about these Hebrew men who are not obeying. And the, and the king brings these men to the front and he asks them a question. Starting in verse, verse 13, the king brings these three men up to the front and asks them, Is it true? Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Is it true? These men have a real tough decision to make. See, the text at this point leads us to believe that before this moment, they have not officially protested the king's commands. They were not obeying the king's commands, but it's not like the king noticed it. It took other people to let the king know what was going on. And I think we see this a lot in life, and it's nothing bad. They didn't do anything wrong, but they weren't outright protesting what the king had said to do. They just didn't comply. I think we see this a lot here in our world. Many of our families here at Refinery, you guys homeschool. And I've heard many of your stories on why you homeschool. Whether it's a lack of trust in the, the government's system or it was a lack of trust in, in what they're going to be taught or you feel like they're being taught something that's not biblical or whatever it might be, you've said, I'm going to just raise my kids and teach them the way I want to teach them. Not everybody, and I'm not casting judgment on those who don't, but there's a lot of you who've made that decision. And many of you, you don't go to city council meetings, you don't go and protest it, you just said, I'm not about it. I'm just not going to do what you do. And that's okay. That's what these men did. I'm not going to go to the king and yell at him for making this decision, but I'm just simply not going to comply. That's still a tough decision. Many of you had to make tough decisions. Choices, sacrifices to make that work. But in this scenario, now the king has been made aware of their d disobedience, now they have a real tough decision to make. Because now the king is looking at them and saying, is it true? Is it true that you've disobeyed me? Is it true that you won't obey my commands? You won't worship the statue I've set up? Is it true? And they have to make a decision. Are they going to lie and tell the king that they will worship? Or they have been worshiping? Are they going to go back and worship this false god? Or are they going to continue to be faithful, knowing the consequences if they say, yes, it is true? Again, consequences come into play. They know what the punishment is if they say yes. And they have to make that, make that decision. Do I stay committed to what I believe, to my God, or do I submit to the world and the fear I have in man. That's what they had to ask, and that's what you and I have to ask ourselves. Do we stay committed to what we believe, to God and what God has commanded us to do as believers? Or do we submit to the world and to the fear that we have of man? It's a heart check for all of us. But these men, this is how they respond. This is how they share with the king what they feel. It says in verse 16, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, hear this, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These men are doing a very courageous thing, as I'm sure you can imagine. I love the fact that they are in full faith and believing that God is going to deliver them. And again, if you look at the previous chapters, at least, at least chapter 2, look at that one for example. Daniel went to the king with an answer. Daniel got to go back to the king where God had revealed to him the dream and its interpretation. Daniel got to go in there and say, King, I have the answers you need. Yes, there was faithfulness all throughout that chapter. Yes, Daniel was obedient. Daniel prayed. Daniel did all the right things, but Daniel got to go in with some confidence. He had the right answers. These men don't have the right answers. These men don't get to go to the king with the right answers. They have to go in not knowing the response that's going to happen. They don't get to know what God's going to do. They don't get to know where God is going to reveal himself or if he will. Notice how they answered that. It says, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand. There's confidence, there's faithfulness, obedience. But they don't end there. It says, but if not, if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They're covering all bases. They recognize, yes, our God has the power to deliver us. Our God has the power to do whatever he wants to do. He can save us like he saved Daniel in the past. But if he doesn't, we still won't worship your, your false God. We still will not worship your false idol. They know the consequences may still remain. And yet, through, through a courageous act, they tell the king, we have no need to answer you. And you know why they don't need to answer him? Why they can say that with so much authority? because they know they already answer someone else. They are fully aware that there is only one person they have to answer to on this, on this earth. It's the one person that's going to judge them. It's the one person that judged the king. It's the one person that's going to judge you and I, and that's, the God, that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. James chapter 4, verse 12 says, There is only one lawgiver and judge. He is able to save and destroy. Now, James is not talking about King Nebuchadnezzar. He's not talking about Rome. He's not talking about anyone. He's not talking about America. He's not talking about anyone else but one person. It's pretty clear he's talking about God. Psalm 75, 7. But if it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up... But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Make it very clear, brothers and sisters, it is God who executes that judgment, not the king not our worldly politicians. No one here casts real judgment. It is our God, our Father in heaven, who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. But, even if that's true, there are still consequences to face. These men know the truth. They're very faithful to God. They know that at the end of all of this, they will be judged in their obedience to God. That does not mean consequences will not remain. And they're going to see those consequences play here on earth in this situation. 
Starting in verse 19, we see the king in his anger after hearing them blatantly disobey his commands. He takes them or has his people take them to the furnace, turn the furnace up seven times hotter than it normally is and throw these men into the fire. It says it was so hot that the men who threw them into the fire died. And then we kind of just are left to imagine the king turns around and goes back to business. And you know, it's over. They're done. They're not coming out of that thing alive. I'm going to turn back around and enjoy my statue. But we do see in verse 24 a different story, something that the king wasn't expecting. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the sun, like a son of the gods. Now the Septuagint, which is a, one of the earliest Greek trans- translations of the Hebrew Bible, it tells us that when the king turned back, when the king turned back, he turned back because he heard these men singing praises to God. The picture we're painted here is the king has his men throw them into the fire. He turns around to go back to his business. And the only reason he turns back around is because he hears singing and praises in the fire. And that's when he notices the fourth. That's when his men begin to notice something's not right. And I can't confirm whether that situation is true or not. We do know, based on the scriptures, that yes, indeed, the king did turn back around, that yes, indeed, he saw four men in that fire. And we do know as believers who that fourth man was. That was Jesus. That was the Son of God coming to deliver these men in the fire. And I will say, that is the consequence. They were thrown into the fire. Yes, they dealt with the consequences, but they were not left alone. That is a praise we can worship God for. But I do want to point out how much I love that, that idea that the king turned back around because he heard singing and praises to God. Because I'm sure that's not what he heard from the men who burned alive outside of the fire. I'm sure that's not what he expected to hear. I'm sure he expected to hear screaming and yelling and pain and death. And yet, what gets his head turning back around is something that he did not expect to hear. Praises, singing, joy, I'm sure, I'm, I can't imagine this is the first time he's used this fiery furnace. I'm sure he's never heard that before when he's thrown someone in there. This situation reminds me a lot of Acts chapter 16, verse 25, where it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were playing, or praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Isn't that a great picture? Both the one we see of these Hebrew men in the fire and the one we see of Paul and Silas in prison, both of them parallel very nicely. Where you have one, the men in the fire who've been persecuted for their their crimes against the king, thrown into punishment, very immediate punishment. And then you have Paul and Silas, men who were faithful and obedient to God and they were put in prison. Why? Because they were faithful and obedient to God. Both of these groups have been faithful and now they've both been punished for their faithfulness. The men, the Hebrew men, in the fire, in the punishment, in the pain, or what the king would think was pain, they're singing praises to God, and it turns the head of the king. In prison, when Paul and Silas should be 
down and in the dumps and, and in pain and, and complaining like the rest of the prisoners, what are they doing? They're singing and praying and singing hymns. And what happens? The prisoners, who aren't Paul and Silas, are listening to them. And they're taking notice of these men being joyful in a place where they were not expecting joy. I love that picture because it's something that we always should be reminded of. If you were with us on Thursday for our Cultivate Bible study, we we're going to the book of Romans, and we were reminded of this reality on Thursday, that we as believers live in a completely different reality than the rest of the world. We were reminded that suffering should cause joy, that suffering causes endurance and character, and then at the end, hope. Why? Not because the suffering is good, not because the suffering is joyful, but because the suffering is not about us, it's about God. And when we go through suffering, what happens, as Romans shares, Romans 5, suffering causes endurance. We begin to live an endurance life which builds character, which helps us to look more like Christ, refined to look more like Christ. And then through character provides hope because the world around us, the world that's going to see that struggle, they watch us go through the same things they go through, but we just do it differently. We just act a little differently. These Hebrew men experienced that. They're not the only ones that were punished. I'm sure they're not, they're not the only ones that have ever been put in that fire, but they're the ones that responded differently. They sang praises to God, and God was obviously there with them. But look at the men in prison, Paul and Silas, faithful men of Jesus, put in prison for their preaching of the gospel. Jesus is not in that room, or at least no one thinks he is. They had the Holy Spirit in them, so he was with them. But no one saw Jesus in that room with them. But what were they doing? Singing hymns to God. And the prisoners in that room heard and took notice. Let me take a moment here and talk to, to many of you who have been going through a very tough situation. I have talked to many of you, and I know many of you who consider this your church home have had a very rough couple of years. I know the story of many of you who have ha shared with me situations where you are not in control and you are going through pain that you do not know how to handle. It is very real to me. It is very apparent to me. It is not a fun part of my job to hear that. But it's a very necessary part of this because I get to experience this with you and share in that grief and that pain. But let me also share with you Romans 5 and Acts 16 and um, Daniel 3. Because these men who were faithful to God did something unique that should impact how we see the pain we're going through. I've had the chance to share in this pain with many of you and share in that frustration with many of you. But the beauty of our situation, the beauty of what we get to experience here is those, those same people who are throwing stones, those same people who hate you for what you believe, those same people who don't know what's going on, when they look in this room, what do they hear? They hear singing and praises to God. When you are going through those situations, and I know many of you are, I'm not ignorant of the fact that this is not easy for many of you. When you're going through those situations, what makes you unique is how you respond to the pain and persecution you've experienced. 
those people specifically who have been hurting, who have been throwing those stones towards you, they're expecting you to come back at them. They're expecting you to do things that they're used to. Why? Because they're used to the flesh. They're used to how the flesh reacts. They're used to what they've experienced in their past, which was the flesh. They're used to how they've been hurt in the past, how they've been treated in the past. They're used to how they've been taken advantage of. But you know what's beautiful about us? We don't have to work in the flesh. We don't have to live in the flesh. We've been transformed through a relationship with Christ. We don't have to treat ourselves like we're in the flesh. We get to live in the Spirit. And you know what a reaction that the Spirit would offer us? What Daniel 3 offers us. What Acts 16 offers us. Singing praises to God even when it doesn't make sense. Singing praises to God when we're in pain. Praises to God when we're hurting, when we're sad, when we've been defeated. Praises to God when we don't really want to praise God. I'm not saying you have to change your, your feelings. I'm saying you change your reaction. You know what's bigger than you. You know what's better than you. You know what's coming after you. And you know what those people don't know which is Christ has come and he saved you and he's brought forth deliverance from sin that you couldn't have controlled yourself. He's brought forth freedom that you couldn't have brought on yourself. He's brought forth things that you couldn't have done yourself. People often come to the Bible seeking answers for problems. They seek answers for things that don't really matter in the first place. They seek things that they don't need prosperity financially things that they don't really need in the first place but they seek them why because they want them and i've always wondered why that's the first thing we seek and it's because it's of the flesh let me tell you what the spirit would tell us to seek the spirit would tell us to seek the one thing that matters and that is salvation through jesus christ jesus has already given us everything we could ever need and more jesus has already provided us with everything we could ever want and more if we're actually in tune with the, what the Spirit would want us to do, it is not seeking this book for things of worldly desire, of worldly needs. It's not to find a way to prove people wrong. It's not to find a way to make people you know, pay for what they've done to us. It's recognizing that none of this matters. And a single bit of it matters. Because at the end of all of this, we have one judge. And that judge is going to base his judgment on whether or not we knew his son, Jesus Christ. And so, I love this quote, actually. I'm going to conclude this point with this quote. It says, Your life as a Christian should, not, should make non-believers question their unbelief in God. Paul and Silas certainly did that. Those prisoners who were complaining the whole time about being in prison, I'm sure when they heard Paul and Silas, they questioned their unbelief in God. If you read the rest of Daniel 3, you're going to see the king questioned his unbelief in God because he saw the Son of God in that with those three men. Your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their unbelief in God. And that points back to the main idea for this evening, the main point I want to make this evening, and I want all of us to hear it. I don't know what everyone's situation is, but I know many of them. I know many of your situations, but this is what you must remember and hold on to. It is not the struggles that we face in life that separate us from the, from the world, but rather how we respond to those struggles that separate us. When we live separately from the world, people take notice. And it brings people into the fold, not away from it. When we live of the flesh, it sends people away. When we live of the Spirit, it draws people in. Because they want to know more. 
They want to see how you're responding and why you're responding that way. But I'll end with this. The band, if you can come back up, I'll end with this as they, they join me on the platform. I just want to point back to Jesus one more time and make sure it's clear to everyone that Jesus went through more on that cross than we could ever imagine. He took a punishment he didn't deserve for you and I. And really, take a moment and remember that. We've already remembered him with the cross, but let's go deeper for a moment. Any pain, any suffering, any persecution, anything you've experienced here on earth, you need to understand that Jesus has done more on that cross than the pain you're experiencing now. He took a pain and a punishment that you and I could have never endured. And why did he do it? Not because he deserved it, because you and I deserved it. He had no reason to have to do that. He has no reason to, was he wasn't forced to do it. As we've shared before from this platform, he went willingly. We see when, he, when he's called Emmanuel, that represents Jesus being both God and man. Why? Because he wasn't crafted to just be a sacrifice. No, he was there from the very beginning with God, and he said, I'll go and take their punishment. I will die for them, because they can't do it themselves. And not one single person on this planet has ever been good enough to reach heaven, to reach perfection, to reach God. But man, you better be happy that no one has. Again, as we said on Thursday at Bible study, if one person did it, it'd be like that one person get 100% on the test. Their curve would be destroyed. You know, one person succeeded, so now everyone pays the price for it. No one has succeeded. And you better be happy no one has, because if someone did, you and I would be in a lot of trouble, because we would not have been able to do it. But Jesus came because not a single human being has ever accomplished what Jesus accomplished. And because of that, we can celebrate. So as we end tonight's service, you know, we're, obviously the altars are open. They always are. But I'm not specifically calling for an altar call this evening. I want to do what they did in Daniel 3, and I want to do what they did in Acts 16, and simply praise God as loud and happy and joyful as possible. I want to pray for those people who have hurt us. I want to pray for those who do not yet know Christ. But I just want us to praise God. And so if you will stand with me. And I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to end service. We, we, we began it with worship and praise.